This morning I call my message book ends, uh, and it is because in one sense it's uh, that combination between the, the end of something and the beginning of something else. In 1738, long before I was born, the literary giant Samuel Johnson wrote in his diary these words, O Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth. Nineteen years later, he had another entry in his diary in which he wrote this. Almighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time misspent in the idleness of sin, but diligent application of the days yet remaining. And almost every year, with a different variation of the same theme, he prayed the same prayer. In 1775, 38 years later, after the first time he had that resolution, he wrote this. When I look back upon resolution of improvement and amendment which I have made year after year and broken, why do I yet try and resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and despair is criminal. Wonderful words. Uh, as much as the language is probably a little bit unfamiliar to us, but it expresses that deep desire within all of us to experience change, to not settle for what it is, but actually, particularly when it comes to spiritual uh, progress, to see that change that God can bring in our lives. Total uh, opposite in terms of the quote source. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's a generational movie, part, part of kind of the, those who were sort of kids and teens in the 80s. Uh, there's a very famous line in it, which the main character uses. He says this, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. And here is a sort of opportunity that the new year brings. We have this opportunity with the end of something, the beginning of something else, to have a stop and reflect, to have a chance to assess where we are, but probably most importantly, to know what do we do, how do we go forward as we step into an opportunity into the new year. And there's much debate, and those of you who've uh, read my, my post that I put out yesterday, there's much debate about New Year's resolutions, what is it that we need. I would uh, simply argue probably for uh, embracing a new rule of life, not just New Year's resolutions, like the classic stuff where you sign up for the gym uh, and, and then by February you've given up. What we want is that sort of lasting change that affects our spiritual lives. So here is what I think would be some really important things for us as a church that we could step into. I think we need to look back and I think we need to look forward. And in looking back, I think it's really important to look back with thankfulness. Thankfulness to the Lord. Listen, listen to these words from Psalm 107, verse 1. Give thanks, and some of you know it by heart. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. It is right to be thankful this morning, not because life is good, not because everything in our circumstances is absolutely fine, not because our health is perfect, or our family is uh, in an incredibly good shape. No, 
We give thanks because God is good. How do we know God is good? The psalmist says, his love endures forever. Every single one of us, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what kind of year we had, we can absolutely confidently this morning say, I can say that the Lord is good because his love endured even this year. It's been an experience that we embraced. And why is it important to be thankful? Because it's an antidote to pride. The biggest virus, spiritually speaking, that we all of us individually and collectively as a society we're fighting is pride. It's, and pride can be quite sneaky. And it could come into our lives in, in, and make us thankless. And we can be so obsessed about looking inside and all the shortfalls and all the difficulties and all the challenges. And we fail to see the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God that we've all experienced in this year. Demonstrated by his unchanging eternal love. So we're fighting that spiritual virus of pride by being thankful. It's very difficult to be proud if you constantly acknowledge the greatness, the goodness, and the faithfulness of God. Because your eyes would be on him, not on yourself. And that's why it's so important as we look back to come with thankfulness. And it's countercultural. Everything within our culture fuels thanklessness or a spirit of complaint. I mean... I, I, you know, even, even yesterday, you know, as I was, you know, taking a shower, you'd be laughing your heads off at this. I'm using a particular brand of shower gel. And I'm not kidding you. I think they've watered it down. <laughs> I'm serious. Another one, last week, uh, thankfully, it didn't end up with a cake disaster, you know, uh, we, we went to shop for butter, and, and there's a particular uh, branded butter in a silver foil that's really good. It's like top of the brand, right? And you will not believe it. They've actually dropped the package size from 250 grams to 200, and the price stayed the same. You're laughing your head off. We love to complain, don't we? There's always something wrong. But it's countercultural to become somebody who is constantly thankful to God and acknowledging that and developing that habit, not just now, but in our lives and practicing it publicly and privately. And that's an opportunity that we're going to have tonight as we come to the service. Here's a question I want to ask myself. Do I live in such a way that those around me know me to be a thankful person? Because that's what we want the Holy Spirit to grow in our lives. Just a spirit of gratitude. Don't have to turn into a weirdo. You know, the churches can be full of weirdos. People going through a hard time and pretending it's easy. And covering up with some sort of a over-spiritual veneer that's fake. No, we don't have to do that. What I love about the Psalms, and they teach us how to live this life of gratitude and to worship in an authentic way, is that David very often starts the Psalm pouring out his guts to God with all the raw stuff that's inside of him, 
you know, almost stuff that's really hard to read. And when he has a problem with somebody, he kind of calls it out. Or when he's disappointed, he really lets that disappointment flow. But the psalm ends up going into praise, ends up focusing on God, ends up with a sense of backing off and going, yeah, God, but I forgot about you, actually. And that's what we need to do to have that sense of authenticity about the challenges in our life. But we don't stay there. Modern day church, and particularly sort of from a generation 10 years younger than me and going down, they're just obsessed about traumas and difficulties and challenges. And they just stay in that place and never move on. The generation above me, it's all is glittery and glowy and fine. And if you're a Christian, you don't get depressed and everything is absolutely fine. We need to strike that biblical balance in between the two. Yes, we are honest about the difficulties in our life, but we don't stay there. We don't get self-centered. We don't get obsessed about it, seeking attention in everything. But we actually acknowledge that it's real. But we turn our eyes to God and cultivate an environment of thankfulness because of his faithfulness and his enduring love. You know, it's not a small thing. Sometimes even when we give thanks to God, we end up thanking God for the car and the house and the school and the exam we passed. And so very often we forget his enduring love, which is the foundation of our life, which is what we've just celebrated in communion. We come with hearts that are thankful, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. This is how we finish the year and how we want to live into the future. The other way to look back is to look back with a sense of repentance. In Revelation, the Spirit of God gives John a vision in in which he receives this message. And there's a particular message for several churches, but they're also archetypes of attitudes It isn't just about a geographical located church that the Spirit of God has a message for, but also it actually transcends time and it goes beyond that location geographically. And here is a message to the church in Ephesus. By the way, a plug in in the new year, we're going to look at the the, the letter to the Ephesians uh, as we're going to look at God's identity in Christ. But here is the message that the uh, angel has for the church in Ephesus. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars. And that's, that's Jesus. It's a pictorial image of Jesus. In his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name. And have grown, not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. This was an amazing church. The church at Ephesus was a good church. It was the kind of church a pastor would be proud to lead and the kind of church a member would be really pleased to attend. And, and the Spirit of God lists those qualities. He says, you're doctrinally sound. 
you're also that keen on right doctrine and you actually make sure that nobody who brings false teaching can have a foot in the church and you treat them in the right way. Also, you are hardworking. So probably if you looked at the church in Ephesus on their weekly news, they had tons and tons of ministries and programs that were happening all throughout the week. They were also persevering in the face of persecution and hardship. They were keeping on going. And you're thinking, well, surely God's going to say thumbs up. Well done, you guys. You're great. Sound doctrinally involved in ministry, keeping on when things are tough. But God has something to say. And the message is, you have lost your first love. And I think there is something in this for every believer and every church. I don't think any one of us could stand right now before God and say, God, I love you right now with all my heart, mind, and strength. With everything within me, I am sold out. I'm all for you. There's always that sense that there is more. There's always that sense in which we've grown cold. Grace has become okay instead of amazing. Sin is just a little bit of a mistake. When we're thinking about the first love, that's what we're thinking. We're casting back our mind to the first few days and weeks and months after you became a follower of Christ. You know, if they were putting something on in church, you were there. That was my experience. I was there. I was so on fire for God. If there was a prayer meeting, even if they were praying for the curtains, I'll be showing up. I wouldn't want to miss any opportunity to gather with the believers and pray. When it came to sin, every every small, there's no small sin. You know what I'm saying. Every small thing, getting angry, getting frustrated, having a thought that you got, you know, you got mad at somebody. You know, I, I was feeling the depth of the conviction of God in my soul. And I was coming with a repentant, tearful eyes before him. Now we just make excuses for big stuff. Never mind those small things. That's what the first love is all about. Being absolutely ready to do whatever God is asking you to do. Do you remember those days? If God was saying, you leave your job, because it's not the right kind of job. You leave a relationship because it's toxic, spiritually speaking. You and I, we were ready to do that in radical obedience to God. Now God is saying, get up out of bed half an hour early. And we're like, yeah, but God is good. God is good. It's all right. It's fine. We need to have that first love. And we need to come today with a sense of repentance, with a sense of God we, we know we've fallen short. We also know that we have your grace. We're not under condemnation. But we want to be in that place of being on fire for you. Being as we were when we had our first love. It makes me want to slap people, figuratively speaking. You know, when, when somebody's a young Christian and, and a, a, a disciple of Jesus on their first steps in following Jesus, and somebody as an older Christian comes back and pats them on the back and say, Hey, son, hey, daughter, it's just a honeymoon pe- period. You'll be just like the rest of us, miserable, after a few weeks and months. I want to slap them. I'm thinking, no, it should get better. It should get even better. What you're experiencing right now is just the beginning. It's going to get so much better. But we have this view of... 
following Jesus right at the very beginning with all that sort of healthy naivety that is there as some sort of a rubbish childish thing and somehow we've matured because now we've kind of grown out of our first love. You, you, you hear me what I'm saying? And what we need is to recover that, that first love. When Jesus is our everything and whatever he asks, when he says jump, we jump. When he calls us to deeper intimacy with him, we'll pay the price and we'll do whatever it takes. We're ready to live the radical life. I don't talk much about it, but I think life's getting shorter and sometimes you have to. I've grown up in a church. Sometimes people say, why are you the way you are? And I think I've, I've lost so much of my first love. I'm so embarrassed about it. I've grown up in a church that grew from about 110 people, which had been at for about 30 years, to over 800, and that's conversions. I've seen and tasted revival. I know what it looks like. People becoming Christians every week, people getting baptized every month. That's real church growth, not just Christians touristing from one church to another, but non-believers, friends, my friends, my neighbors, people that you know, would come to church. They wouldn't be able to come to church three times without becoming a Christian. You know what the secret is? Well, I don't know it, but I can tell you this. Every single Friday night, from 8 o'clock at night till about 5 o'clock in the morning, the women of the church, tens of them, would be in the basement of the church, flooding that floor with tears, beckoning on God. Church, do you want to see revival? Have you ever come to the prayer meeting on a Saturday morning? One hour. One hour. All I'm saying is there's a price. We cannot, as the church, say, God, we want to see you move in power, saving people's lives. And then every single time there's an opportunity to engage with God saying, send somebody else, Lord. We keep looking at places in the world where God is at work, and we keep saying, well, it's not going to happen here. The reason it's happening there because people are praying. People are paying the price. People are, when God is calling them sacrificially, making everything God-centered. It has to happen. And we have to have a heart of repentance. We have to see in this nation a change where church buildings stop becoming restaurants or posh new dwellings. We want to see in this nation churches being planted, not necessarily church buildings, but churches being planted. And the reverse, we've got to stop embracing that narrative of defeatism. But it starts with me, and it starts with you, and it starts with simple stuff, like sometimes coming to the prayer meeting, going to your connect group, showing up to, at the evening service when we're putting something on, trying to equip you. Listen, Ian and I would love to be at home on a Sunday night, chilling out. But we believe that there's need for more equipping. What we're hearing is, I'm not strong. I need encouragement. I need help. I need God to strengthen me. That's why we put everything that we ever put on, we put it with a mind to equip us and to get us to be closer to God, not just to be busy. I hate being busy religiously. We need to come with a sense of repentance like the church in Ephesus, and come to find the first love. I don't know what it looks like for you. I know what it looks like for me. 
All I'm saying, I'm letting the Spirit of God speak to us all individually, very specifically. But what I'm crying out is, God, would you make us as a church recover that first love for you? Being sensitive to sin, quick to repent, ready to serve, ready to be sacrificial, ready to get out of our comfort zone when it comes to people taking our time and our energy and just being ready to honor Jesus and make much of Jesus. First love, looking back. Another way to look back is through forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. I always do it if I get a chance to speak at the end of the year. How is your forgiveness? Unforgiveness is so toxic. It damages our relationship with God. When Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins, he's saying what? Forgive us our sins. You say it. As we forgive those who have sinned against us. There's a correlation there. There's a link there. And that's weirding me out. It's troublesome. Because it's basically saying, if I'm living in unforgiveness, there's a brokenness in the relationship with God as much as there's a brokenness in the relationship with somebody that I am not forgiving. Paul is writing the Ephesians and he's saying, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other. And the reason is this. It's because Christ forgave us. It's one of the most difficult things that we have to do in life, right? And some of you are carrying such deep hurt. And my heart just breaks for you. And I know when you hear me say that, you're kind of going, don't go there. But it's not me saying, it's God's word. And I really trust, as hard as that is, that God knows best. And let me say this really strongly. God knows what's best for you. And what's best for you is to forgive. Forgiveness flows from the cross towards us. It fills us and it should spill out into the lives of those around us, even those who hurt us. And again, at the end of this year, I want to encourage you, realizing that this is supernatural. It's not, we can't do this in our own strength. This is a spiritual act through which we surrender ourselves to the Spirit of God and say, Holy Spirit, help me. Help me to forgive and live with a life of forgiveness so that I will be like Christ. And it's simply this question, who do I need to forgive? And maybe also, who do I need to ask for forgiveness from? It's right as we look at the past, as we look back, not to step into the new year with unforgiveness. May the Spirit of God guide us very specifically in what ways we can be living out that forgiveness. Looking ahead at the other bookend, I want to encourage us to invest in personal devotion. Listen to these words from the psalmist. You may be very familiar with them. Psalm 63, 1 to 8. You, God, are my God. 
I earnestly seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. It's linked to that first love that the Spirit was talking about to the church in Ephesus. It's having that desire of personal devotion where we're just running hard after God with a desperation of somebody who recognizes, unless I have God, I have nothing. I know that sometimes our lives can be so filled with self-sufficiency, which is either based on our own resources or our own personalities, that edges God out. It is true to say that the harder life gets, the more, as Spurgeon used to say, you get thrown against the rock of ages. And you find your strength in there. Stir up and fuel up that desire for intimacy with God. Everything in your life, Satan is on a war path. The destruction that you see And the assault that you see in places around the world right now, that's a sort of physical picture of what is happening spiritually. Satan is assaulting you and me daily, trying to destroy and sabotage our relationship with God. And the best way he does it is so subtle, is through apathy. And he's saying, settle down. Don't pray so much. Don't read the Bible so much. Don't go to church so much. Don't go to your connect group. Don't serve. Just settle down. He's always going to show you people in the church who are not doing it saying, see, they're not doing it. It's funny, isn't it? Satan never shows me the great people in the church that are passionate, that I can be lifted up and go, hey, let's raise our game. Satan's very crafty and he was on a wall path to just bring apathy, 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 apathy to our spiritual desire. And we need to fight that with stirring ourselves up, getting passionate, asking the Spirit of God to give us that passion for him. Not settling for substitutes, whatever they may be or whoever they may be. And that means embracing strategic disciplines. It's just not going to happen if we don't do anything about it. If I keep my Bible in my library, I will not grow to know God's word better unless I pull it off the shelf, open it up, make some room and some space, and get myself into God's word. It's not going to happen. And that's why we need that sense of saying, God, just bring on that personal devotion towards you. The tools of grace, think about it as a spiritual gym. And it's simple, we all know this, but it's, it's going back to basics. It is reading God's word, spending time in prayer, spending time in fellowship with other people, and then serving or sharing the good news 
with others. Those are the tools of grace. Those are the machines in the spiritual gym where you get stronger, spiritually speaking. But you need to show up at the gym. If you're not showing up at the gym, tell you what, you're not going to get fit spiritually. And we need to do that. The psalmist is doing. Just stir up our hearts for that. So I'm asking you the question, what is your new rhythm you want to have in your life, your rule of life? What's your plan? What is your plan for getting spiritually fit? Because if you don't have one, let me tell you, you're going to lose. If you don't have a plan, if you don't have an idea, if you're not mapping something out and nobody else can map it out for you because we're all very different. But if you don't have one, I'm guaranteeing you, standing right in front of the church here, last Sunday of the year, 2023, you will not get spiritually fit unless you're going to have a fitness, spiritual fitness plan. Unless you're going to engage with prayer, scripture, fellowship, serving, sharing the good news. It's just not going to happen. And I'm telling you what, Satan's going to make sure he's going to make you busy, he's going to make you tired, he's going to bring so many distractions in your family, so many distractions at work, so many distractions through social media or uh, Netflix or whatever else to make sure. I tell you what, he has an incredible plan for your life, a plan that is very specific and very targeted, and it's to destroy your spiritual life and destroy your relationship with God. So if you've got that coming against you, it's like the mighty weapons coming against you, and then you're in the place of actually thinking, do you know what? I'm going to get my flip-flops, and I'm going to get my beach towel, and I'm going to go to war. Because that's going to be really good, isn't it? That's why we need to have that sense of personal devotion. And the last one is this, not just personal devotion, but also a sense of mission. Jesus' words to the disciples before he ascended into heaven, again, very well known, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go into the whole world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you. To the end of the age. Here is a killer line that came to me last week. We are empowered. But we are empowered to witness. The two are very much linked. All throughout the New Testament I observed this incredible pattern. The release of the supernatural in God is linked to mission. Are you hearing me? No, you're not. The release of the supernatural gifts is strongly linked to mission, to reaching people for Christ. As long as the church will desire the supernatural just for our own sakes, I think God will be stingy. I think the moment we open our hearts... And embrace the big plan of God, 
which is the mission to see people come to Christ and to the ends of the earth. And we connect with that and we sign up for that and we step into that. I really believe that God will release some incredible supernatural stuff because his heart is for the lost. If we are the children in the crash, longing to have spiritual gifts to play with them as toys, to make ourselves feel better about ourselves, God's going to be stingy. The moment we open our hearts and we say, God, our life is about your mission. Our life is about the renown of your name. Our life is about seeing people's lives changed with the presence and the grace of Christ. That's the moment God will release incredible autographs of his love and power for people to encounter him. As much as Jesus' ministry was authenticated by the supernatural signs that he did, so he longs to do. But it comes with being obedient and embracing that call. We are empowered to mission. And mission isn't passive. We've lived so long in the Western world with that sort of idea that all I'm going to do is live a nice Christian life and then people will know that I am a Christian and will come to find Jesus. Unless they hear, faith comes through seeing good deeds. Ian helping somebody, an old lady cross the road because he's a nice Christian guy. No. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing By the word of God. There is that sense in which we cannot be passive. It has to be active. Go. Jesus is saying go. That means you don't stay on your butt and say, do you know what? And again, we've done this great. You know, we've had thousands and thousands of prayer meetings where we just pray for the lost. And nobody does anything in our lives to tell the lost the good news of Christ. So it is about going. It is about being proactive. It is opening our eyes and opening our ears and saying, God, what, 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 who are you bringing in my life? What are you doing in their life? God, I'm collaborating with you. I'm looking for the supernatural. Will you give me that word of encouragement from Scripture or a word in season for that person that doesn't even know you? When I'm praying for them, will you just raise my level of faith that I can see you do something supernatural and next time we meet together, they say, you won't believe this. And you will say, I do, because that's why I prayed. God longs to see people come to him. Admission isn't passive. And it crosses divides. When Jesus is saying before ascending into heaven, he says, you will be my witnesses in Judea, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's in your neighborhood. Again, we've got to stop being only passionate for mission somewhere in a remote place that we don't have to do anything apart from possibly giving our money to or maybe a trip every four or five years and not talk to our neighbor across the fence. That's our Jerusalem. You'll be my witness in Jerusalem, Samaria. Samaria is like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't make me talk to that person. Please, God, not. Not Man United fans, please. You know, anyone. Burnley fans, okay. Man United fans, no. We laugh, but we all have those people, those Samaritans in our life. Don't make me talk to them. 
could be migrants, could be people of a different sexual orientation, could be people who are atheists. All sorts of people that we've got in our lives, you're thinking, no, not them. Some of them are in our families. You know, they're like the worst Samaritans of all. It's like, I don't want to meet that cousin of mine. Do my head in. Every time I meet, they're always showing off. They're always doing that. I don't want to share the gospel with them. That's a Samaritan. God's calling us to go. Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. We cross divides. That's what Jesus is saying. Go and make disciples of all nations. And that reaches to the point where people are baptized and they get taught. And it's that journey of faith that we get to be involved in. Who do we journey with right now? There could be even people in our church who are on that journey. And maybe you can be somebody who can come alongside. You see, we can slot in as we listen to the Spirit of God at different stages. With some people, it's before they become believers. With some people, as they're starting as young believers. With some people, as they're maturing. That, you know, we just get to wonderfully collaborate with the Holy Spirit as he's leading us on. But the, the question remains for me and you, who are you reaching? Who? Give me a name. Who is it that you're praying with? Who is it that you're listening to or watching or engaging with? Charles Spurgeon was once asked by one of the students whether those who never heard about Jesus could be saved. We get that at Cape and Ray when we lecture. It's one of those classic questions. Good question. What happens to those people who never heard the gospel? Will they be saved? So Spurgeon answered like this. He says, a troubling question indeed. But even more troubling, he said, was whether we know the gospel and do nothing to bring it to the lost who could actually be saved. And then he continued, if Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news just for yourself. You will be whispering it into your child's ear. You would be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you can actually be more than eloquent. Because your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of Jesus' sweet love. And here is his mic drop. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. It's such a great calling to live with a sense of mission as we step into the new year. I echo the words of the psalmist as we have this book ends and we look back and we come with thankfulness and we come with repentance and we come experiencing and giving forgiveness and we come with a sense of crying out for deeper passion and, and, and a greater relationship with God and also that desire to embrace mission. And the psalmist is saying this and the band will come behind me and get ready to lead us in response worship. Psalm 39 verses 4 and 5. This is what a psalmist is crying out. O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, 
You have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Let's pray together. Spirit of God, what an opportunity to look back and look forward. And all we want to do is come before you afresh, longing for that sense of meeting you. As Linda shared in a picture earlier, meeting you and coming before your throne And as we come at your throne, may out of your throne flow the riving waters of life into us and then flow through us into the different families and workplaces and communities we are part of. What we want, Lord, is to be drawn closer to you and each other so that we can be empowered to be your wonderful ambassadors of hope in this hurting world. Because we have the good news. You are the good news. And it's so precious. Spirit of God, help us as we come to you. Let's stand together.